Guys, we are in the book of John, and we are going to get at it right away. So here we go. You know, um, it's a fascinating question. It's a fascinating question. It's a really good conversation starter. What do you think about the world's most influential and famous person? What do you think about the world's most famous and influential person? Give that a go when you're at Costco this week, okay? Pick somebody random. Ask them that question. Give it a go at the coffee shop or, or at Trader Joe's. See, it's more than a fascinating question. And I don't believe this to be an exaggeration to say it is the question. It is the most important question to reckon with because of who we are referring to, right? So, from The Guardian to The Daily Mail in the UK to The Smithsonian Magazine to the TopTens.com to Time Magazine, Jesus is top of the list. Amen. The world's most famous and influential people. Time Magazine evaluated each person by, and I quote, aggregating millions of traces of opinions into a computational data-centric analysis. They ranked historical figures just as Google ranks web pages by integrating a diverse set of measurements about their reputation into a single consensus value. How's that? And who comes out on top? Jesus. Yeah, right? And rightfully so. What do you think about the world's most famous and influential person? It is the question that deserves everyone's attention. The most important question of my life, of your life, of everyone's life. And it is the question that runs through the Gospel of John like a river and shapes the very storytelling of John. John is writing the Gospel, the good news, in a way to help us ponder and to answer this big question, who is Jesus? Who is he? This, by the way, is Jesus' question in all the Gospels. Who do you say I am? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the whole book of John is written to answer this question. And so today, we launch into a new volume of our Meditations with John series. We are in volume four, which is called Identity. Because one of the key literary designs and major themes that is woven throughout the Gospel of John is that of the identity of Jesus. And John strategically recounts seven I am statements of Jesus throughout the Gospel, leading the reader time and time and time again to face the great question, who is Jesus? And so before we begin looking at these seven identity statements of Jesus throughout the next weeks, uh, we need to set something of a foundation, and I'll make this, this part um, short because we will revisit it. Two little words landed Jesus in big trouble. Two little words. I am. I am. So what's, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is Jesus isn't just using some seven or so metaphors to help us to get to know him, to give us some few interesting facts like, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm a Capricorn, I like to take long walks on the Sea of Galilee, I like Mediterranean food, oh, and I work for a nonprofit, right? <laughs> it's not just to give a few interesting facts about Jesus. He is showing us seven ways in which he is the Son of God, the Son of God come to earth taking on flesh, okay? And those seven I am statements 
are as follows. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the vine. I am the vine. See, his repetitive I am's are there because Jesus is riffing off of um, one of the most famous moments in Israel's history. He's, he's riffing off of an incredible revelation. So do you recall that story? There's a shepherd. He's out in the boonies, hanging out with the sheep, and something shimmering catches his eye. And so he turns aside to go and investigate, and he finds the burning bush, right? This strange oddity of a burning bush. Now from out of that fire came a voice. It was the voice of God himself, and he was commissioning Moses to go and be an, an instrument of, of liberation, of redemption for God's people who were in slavery, right? Where were they? Egypt, right? They were in Egypt. Okay. So, Moses says, well, who should I tell them is sending me? Who is this God? Who, who are you? And what's the answer? I am that I am, right? A way of saying that the self-existent one, the ever was, ever is, ever will be one. I am that I am, self-existence and timeless being. In Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh, at least we pronounce it that way. The actual pronouncing is, is lost to history, Yahweh, but it's a breath in and a breath out. Yahweh, it's, it's, the name is, is life itself, so to speak. Now, when this Hebrew word, I am that I am, is translated into Greek through what's called the Septuagint, which is basically just the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, when they translated it from Hebrew to Greek, Yahweh became ego eimi, which is I, I am. So Jesus and John, they want us to see that Jesus is God in the flesh, not merely a voice in a burning bush, but the word as flesh and bone who will hang on a tree for the redemption of humanity. So let's do this. Let's follow the story and see what Jesus means when he says that he is the bread of life. So quick word of context. We're going to locate ourselves in the story. Now here's what's happened. Jesus has just done the miraculous. He is out and about teaching around the Sea of Galilee. Masses of people have come out to follow him. He has just finished um, a miracle of, of epic proportions. He has just turned a few uh, fish and loaves into a meal for 5,000 plus, more like 20,000 people when you include women and children. And it's just this miraculous thing, so much so that the crowds are ready to enthrone Jesus as king, to coerce him into being their king in this moment. And Jesus pulls one of his Jesus-y ninja maneuvers, and he's gone from the crowd. He's going to head back to home base, which is the city of Capernaum, which is just across the sea. Well, the people come and find him. They need to find this bread giver, and they do. They go looking for him, they find him, and that's where Jesus drops this news on, on them. He is the bread of life. And so the big idea today, the, the, the crucial point that we're going to be looking at is, is simply this. It's a question and answer. What does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? We might have heard it, but what does that actually mean? 
What does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? Jesus is the gift. He is the gift of true satisfaction, of true nourishment and joy. Jesus is the gift of true satisfaction, true nourishment, and true joy. Let's see how this develops in John chapter 6, shall we? Turn with me to John chapter 6. We'll pick up at verse 25. I'm going to read a number of scriptures today and comment on them as we go through. The narrative's key. So, John 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, back at Capernaum, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. The Father approves of the Son. Okay, so they find him, and he knows exactly why they're there. He's like, you're after me because of a free lunch. That's why you're here. Not because of signs, but because you ate your fill. So here's the deal. He sees into their hearts, and he calls them out for chasing him because they want to fill their bellies while disregarding their soul's real hunger pains. Their priorities are all off. You're not here because of who I am, he says, right? You're not here because you saw me do a sign that points to who I am. You're here because of a good meal. And so he says, look, don't just give your life to perishable and temporary things. Don't waste your life that way. Don't be trying to fill your life with things that will never fill you full. Go after that which will truly satisfy you. Eat the food that brings you true life, eternal life. And so in short, he, he calls them out. He's basically saying, why are, you, why are you really here? Why are you really here? And it seems to me that he's doing the same thing with us today and with many all over the globe. Why are you really here? Why am I here? Why are we here? What's all this about? Are we after a bread that won't satisfy is all this simply about some feel-good comfort? Are we here because we're paying our, our spiritual dues or there's some kind of spiritual insurance policy at play because of our actions? Is all this about some transactional thing with, with God so that we get from Him what we want if we do the things that we think we're supposed to do? Is it religious motions to quiet our troubled conscience because of the way we're living out the rest of our weeks, right? Or is it the comfort of the known, just reflexive motions of, of our traditions that we should be here on a Sunday and that we should, we should be reading scriptures every now and then? Or is it for the true food? Is Jesus, do we ache and long for Jesus to be in his presence, to know him, to see him through his word, to know him, to see him through his people that his spirit is in, to be singing and enthroning him on praises. Do we, do we long to be with him and see him because he is our food and we're hungry? Amen. See, there's a big difference. Jesus exposes their faulty hearts to help them see. 
what is important. And so the question I think we should be asking ourselves is, are we so enthralled with the number of really good gifts that he gives us that we, do, we don't see him as the gift anymore? He's a means. He's a conduit. Right? But he is not the end. Are we after a happy meal rather than holy communion with the king of all creation? Questions we should ask ourselves. So a quick illustration, by the way. Um, Marla and I, we, we have three, three kids, as many of you know, and we do this thing um, called mommy and daddy dates. And so we spend time one-on-one with each of our kids. So um, sometimes I'll go, hey, it's daddy date day, and I'll take one of our kids to donuts or a hamburger or ice cream. And the goal of the whole thing isn't just to have donuts, hamburger, or ice cream. It's just like a, a side perk to it, right? The goal is union, right? The goal is, is intimacy. I want to get inside Hadley's head and heart. I want to know Silas's longings and his aches. I, I, I want to see into Olivia. Now, if they then ask the next week, like, I want to go out on a date, but they're wanting it because they want ice cream or they want the hamburger. You know, like, if they think that's what the daddy date is about, they've gotten it all wrong, right? Those things are just ways of showing love. The date itself is a sign of our love for them and our desire to be with them and live in intimate union with them. But when you confuse the ice cream and the hamburger for the union and the intimacy, things are off. And too often we confuse the meal for the Messiah because we don't realize that he is the meal. <laughs> Verse 28. Let's keep rolling. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Pause. They respond reflexively, reflexively out of their broken religious hearts. They say, we have to do something. We got to earn. right? We have to perform in order to get. What must we do to earn, perform, to get? What must we do? We, we, we. And then Jesus hits the polarization switch here in verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe, trust in him who he has sent. He says, look, your work isn't to earn, it's to receive. Quit your striving. Start receiving. Quit your performing. Start resting. You must receive what God has given you. Trust in me, he says. I will be your life. The essential, vital, and crucial work of an apprentice of Jesus is to trust in Jesus. And everything else rises out of that trust in Christ. True life is a gift that's received. It's given from heaven. It's not earned or, or labored for. We don't earn it, but it does create great effort in us to lean further into it. So Jesus himself is our soul's true food. Jesus is the gift that cannot be earned, but graciously comes our way. He's not a means to an end. He himself is the end, union with our God. Now the crowds think, okay, this guy is our source of life and nourishment. He's a carpenter. Like, what's going on here? So they reply back in verse 30. They said to him, okay, then, well, what sign do you do that we may see him believe you? As if Jesus hasn't just done something mind-blowing, right? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna, it's the bread in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So in other words, Jesus, you're making some pretty big claims. Seems this is about you. If you're the one who satisfies us, give us a sign. Prove it. 
prove it. Moses did more than you. Give us a Moses supersized meal. Like, do something really big, a bigger miracle, and then, then we will trust you. And sometimes that's how we operate, is we say, give me a bigger miracle, give me a bigger sign. I know you've done a bunch of good things, but, but one-up yourself, and then I'll believe. That is not the voice of faith. That is the voice of doubt, because the miracle is never big enough. I mean, he rose from the dead, came back, and changed history. It doesn't get bigger than that. All right. Verse 32, Jesus has to go to work to unwind their warped way of thinking. Jesus said to them, listen up, or truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread or the manna from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So in other words, he's saying, friends, look, you need way more than a daily supply of sourdough. Right? You need way more than some focaccia bread from heaven. Like, and, and you're getting it all twisted because Moses didn't provide the bread. My father provided the bread. The gift comes from my heavenly father, and now he has sent the true bread that will satisfy you. And I am the true bread from heaven. Quit looking to Moses. Moses and the bread pointed to me, the true Messiah. And then they say here, now let's move on to verse 34. They say to him, sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Radical claim. Radical claim. Sometimes we can just, again, read over the words of Scripture and not let them just pound us in the chest. Do you hear what he just said? Like, no human being can claim that. No good teacher can claim that, right? So let's, let's look at this radical claim. The radical claim here is simply this. Everything the world has to offer is ultimately unsatisfying. Everything this world has to offer is ultimately unsatisfying. Only Jesus will satisfy the true hunger of God our souls. St. Augustine said it this way. He, he said, the best of this world is not good enough. The best of this world is simply not good enough. Now, we, we have to reckon with this kind of statement. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that there aren't good and pleasurable and beautiful and true things in this world that do something beautiful to our souls and fill us up and, and powerful ways. But what this does mean is that if you look to those things in an ultimate sense to satisfy you, they're going to leave you disappointed. And not only that, you're actually going to ruin those things themselves. It's kind of like the manna when they tried to store it up, it became rotten. The good things, when we make them those ultimate things, they become rotten, right? They, they, they crumble in our hands because they bear a weight that they were never meant to bear. So, if you look to a man or to a woman, to a spouse, to a boyfriend or to a girlfriend to fill up that deep longing, that deep hunger in your soul, it will leave you disappointed. They will disappoint you at some point. And this is the hard part about marriage for a lot of people. They think, here it is. And then two months, three months, 
a year, five years later, they radically disappoint you and you realize they're not your savior and you go through an existential crisis. Not only will they disappoint you, but you will crush them. You put on them a God-sized burden they were never meant to carry and you're not loving them well. Same with your kids. Say, well, I don't do that with a spouse or, or you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah, well, what about the kids? Because so often we load on them a salvific-like mantle. They, they are going to save us. If, if, if we invest in them, everything's going, going to be right. You will embitter them because you have put on them something they have never meant to be, be carrying. They are not your savior. They are someone else who needs the salvation that we have in Christ. How about your job, your career, right? Same thing. We turn this incredible blessing that is meant to be a joy for us and meant to provide for us into the blesser himself and suddenly it becomes a slave master for us and destroys us. Jesus is the gift that satisfies our soul's hunger, he and him alone. So let's keep rolling. Verse 36, um, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, who trusts the Son and believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Our time is short today, so we can't dig into all of it, but what is this bit? Jesus is saying that even the most important thing we do, trusting in him is a gift from heaven, is a gift from the Father. Our trust in him comes from the Father. He will draw us all. True li- in, in, in short, true life is gift. Jesus is gift. And that, that continues on here in verse 41. So the, Jew, the Jews grumble about him, saying, uh, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, right, whose father and mother we know, like just the blue-collar guy? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? See, they're getting tangled on this because Jesus is a man. Yes, he's from earth, and he is a carpenter's son, but he is also the son of God come from heaven. So the people misunderstand who God really is and they grumble just like they did in the, in the wilderness back in Exodus. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So again, Jesus is the gift that has come down from heaven. He is the gift of the Father who loves this world well. And even our trust in him, in this gift, is a gift from God himself that we should praise God for. All credit goes to him. Now Jesus goes on and he's going to show us that uh, he is not just uh, um, our true satisfaction but our true nourishment, okay? I am the bread of life. This is verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. The this is him. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, um, when you go back in the story, you remember in the wilderness, God gave daily bread to the Israelites in the wilderness. And it satisfied their, their grumbling stomachs. It filled them up, but their stomachs would be empty 24 hours later, right? The bread wouldn't satisfy their eternity-aimed hearts. Jesus is saying he's the greater manna, right, that comes into the wilderness of this world while we are on our long journey to the promised land. That he is our nourishment that sustains us, that strengthens us, that helps increase our, our spiritual muscle mass, so to speak, that helps us grow in, in maturity in this world into his likeness as we are on this journey home to the promised land. He is our satisfaction and he is our nourishment. By feeding on him, we grow into his likeness. And not, not just satisfaction, not just nourishment, but joy, joy. When you break bread with someone, that's a good thing. We, we had some friends, uh, some dinner with some friends the other night, and we ate good food, and man, the food was good, and it nourished us, and, and it like overly satisfied us. But the joy of fellowship, when you hear breaking bread, like fellowship, to sit and eat with someone, to share life together, it's a beautiful thing. Joy is involved in the breaking of bread. So look at this. Look at verse uh, 56 here. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides, catch that word, abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on the bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue, as he taught at Capernaum. I know I missed some verses. Don't worry, we're going back. You thought like I messed up. No, hold on. Usually I do mess up, but not this time. Look, if Jesus is, is the bread of life, he not only satisfies our longings and our aches, but he nourishes us so that we can become who we are called to be as image bearers of Christ, and he fills us with joy. We abide with him. That word abide means to, to dwell, to make your home. In other words, he says, if you eat this food, if you trust in me, you abide with me. And he's going to teach us later in John that then we abide with the Father. In other words, this is mind-blowing. We get to enter into the delight of the triune God who has ever existed, the Father ever delighting in the Son, the Son ever delighting in the Father, and by the power of the Spirit, we are drawn into ever eternal perpetual joy and delight Amen. that's incredible because Jesus is our bread we are drawn into that eternal feast satisfaction nourishment and joy now how 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 does this happen how do we feed on Jesus as the bread of life how does this life enter into us and get metabolized into our very being, who we are and who we are becoming? Rewind. Go back. Verse 52 through 55. This is the weird bit. Okay? The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
So Jesus said to them, truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And let's just be honest. Like Jesus freaks his listeners out here. We have 2,000 years to kind of process this. They're hearing it. He freaks them out. Like he goes from happy meal, kind, wise, rabbi guy to like scary cannibal guy at this moment. We just went from, from, from Chick-fil-A to like Silence of the Lambs in a split second. And they're trying to figure out what, what is happening. Jesus is the bread that must be consumed. The wheat dies to make the bread to bring life and nourishment to others. It is his work of being broken and being consumed that brings us life. It is his life, his death, his work on the cross, his, his resurrection, his ascension, his spirit coming to us that enters into us to nourish us. He was broken that we might be beautified, that we might enter into the glory of our Lord. This is the way of redemption, that we trust in his death that it will bring life. We're not cannibals in some weird, literal, grotesque kind of way, but to trust in who he is and what he's done. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Again, Jesus is the gift. You should all be capitalized. The gift of true satisfaction, true nourishment, and true joy. Now what do we do with this? Well, not, not do, but be. Sorry for going Yoda on you for a moment. Um, but let's start with be before, before we do. Um, because we're talking about the identity of Christ here. Identity precedes doing, or, or being precedes doing. And this identity of Jesus shows us our identity as his people. We've got to make that connection. The identity of Jesus shows us our identity as his people, right? Does that make sense? Right? Who we are is found in who he is. Who we are is found in who he is. We need to make this connection with all these seven I am statements over the next few weeks, right? Um, we're gonna see who he is and who he is shapes and forms who we are. If we're confused about who he is, no wonder we're confused about who we are. If there's no clarity about him being Lord of all creation, sometimes we're going to think we're Lord of all creation, right? A lot of confusion happens if we're not sure who he is and how that shapes and forms who we are. So we know who he is based on the statement. What does this mean about us? Well, it means that we are the soul-satisfied, nourished, and joyful apprentices of Jesus. That's who we are as his people. We are soul-satisfied, nourished, and joyful apprentices of Jesus. We are the well-fed people of a loving God. Man, that'll mess you up in the best way when you wake up discontent. Preach the news to yourself. Preach that good news. Rehearse the truth. We are the well-fed children of a loving God. I, I am satisfied that the laws, the claims that were on me that I never could satisfy are satisfied in Christ. He nourishes me. He is my joy. 
And when, we, and when we start to dissolve into discontent and fear and worry, we need that soundtrack of truth playing over and over again. So rehearse this truth. This is who you are because of who he is. Now, if this is who we are, what do we do? Our text tells us this clearly. Our work is to believe in him, right? It's to trust in him. So like the manna of the wilderness that came daily to bring the people, the bread, the satisfaction, and the nourishment, we are to feed daily on Jesus. This is what we are to do. We know who we are. This is what we are to do. We are to feed daily on Christ. So apprentices of Jesus feed on Jesus daily. Three of the key ways that we do that, that we talk about here often, that are core to to who we are, um, are these three practices. Scripture meditation, unceasing prayer, and life together. It's not just something pastors are supposed to say, read the Bible. Like, we say that because that's fundamental, it's elemental, it's, it's basic. We spend time with Jesus through his life-giving word. We chew on it, we ingest it, we metabolize it into our being, that it reshapes our imagination, it reshapes the way we see, so it reshapes how we inhabit this world. Amen. Scripture meditation, focus on those things that, that renew your mind, focus on the good and the beautiful and the true unceasing prayer. This is going first and most to God about everything. Living in this world as though you believe he's really there. Talking with him, letting him speak to you. And life together in community, knowing him through his people because his spirit is in you and in you and in you. Right? A.W. Tozer uh, said it this way. I love this. He says, faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. Faith is the gaze of of the soul upon a saving God. I want to tweak that this morning and say, faith is the feasting of the soul upon a saving God. Faith is the feasting of the soul upon a saving God. What are you feeding daily upon? This is a dangerous question, and it starts to to mess with you. What are you feeding daily upon? Is it the, the, the beauty and the goodness and the truth of Jesus? Are you shaped by the contours of the gospel or are you more shaped and prone to thinking about the contours of what's happening on social media and pop culture news? What's shaping you? What are you feeding on daily? And let me just put it this way because I I need to bring this to a close. If, If we ate physically, if we ate physically like we eat spiritually, we would be sickly skin and bones. Let me say that again. If we ate physically like we eat spiritually, we would be sickly, skin and bones. Some of us, if we're honest, we eat spiritually once a week, and today is that day. How's that going to go for you physically if you just have a meal on Sundays and the rest of the week, nothing? You're going to be weak, anemic, lethargic, you're going to waste away, your systems are going to start to shut down. That is what's happening to so many of us spiritually, and we wonder why we can't do this life of apprenticeship. Feed on Jesus. The manna came daily. Eat, feed, daily. Let's not be malnourished. Let us flourish in Christ. So I want to bring this to a conclusion. As apprentices of Jesus, let us enter further into scripture meditation this year, unceasing prayer, life together, and a number of other things we're going to get into this year. 
But taste and see that the Lord is good. He's so good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So what do you think? What do you think about the world's most famous and influential person? Who is Jesus? Who he is shapes who you are.